Welcome to Paket Pusher Podcast. I am Orhan Ergen. This week, we will talk about spinning tree. We have really many topics today, so I want to start immediately. My guest, my dear friend, Anthony Sekera. Welcome, Anthony. Orhan, thank you so much. It is so great to be here for part two of our series on the CCNA Data Center. And today we're going to get to focus on some technologies. Okay. Spinning tree, we will talk about. For a long time, we have been using spinning tree. Uh, there are many drawbacks. Many times, maybe it saved our life. But also, probably, many listener right now they can they think that spinning tree also gave them a lot of pain so what are the other technologies that we can use and eliminate the old drawbacks of the spinning tree uh, maybe some of the drawback some of them we will talk about ether channels multi chassis ether channels uh, some cisco specific also technology we will talk about virtual Switching system VSS, virtual port channels uh, on next 7K and 5K they support it. Ethernet host virtualizer, shortest path bridging and trill. Also, we will touch briefly fabric path. Let's start. Yeah, it sounds great. So, spanning tree protocol. <laughs> boy, oh boy, it's gone through a lot of versioning. And I think we should, since we have a CCNA data center audience here, let's just spend a few minutes talking about how there have been enhancements after enhancements to spanning tree protocol in an attempt to address shortcomings. So one of the things that students might encounter is a data center that's running what we call classic spanning tree protocol. This is 802.1D as in Doug. And 802.1D started experiencing enhancements from Cisco. For instance, port fast, uplink fast, backbone fast. These enhancements were added by Cisco to really try and improve the convergence times of spanning tree protocol. Particular features would be used in particular locations of the data center. For example, port fast would be utilized anywhere there is a client or server that is going to be powered off. Uplink fast would be utilized where we have access layer devices. And backbone fast would be utilized in the entire topology. Now, What's really interesting is these ideas were so great from Cisco that they really became incorporated into the rapid spanning tree protocol version of 802.1W. So we find backbone fast style, uplink fast style enhancements built right into the functioning of 802.1W. Port fast, interestingly enough, still exists with 802.1W, and in fact, you still configure it. So port fast remains really unchanged, and we still go to ports that we want to exhibit the port fast behavior, and we still configure them as such. 
Now, Orhan, one of the confusing technologies I see for students is 802.1S, multiple spanning tree. And I think what students have to understand about 802.1S is, first of all, in a Cisco environment, when they configure it, they automatically are running 802.1W behind the scenes. So multiple spanning tree uses rapid spanning tree technology. Now, what's the difference between the two? Well, 802.1S allows individuals to create what's called a spanning tree instance, and that is going to incorporate whatever VLANs they want. So I might have VLANs 4, 6, and 8, and I want those three VLANs to have a very particular spanning tree topology. And then I can have VLANs 5, 7, and 9, and I can have those three VLANs follow a very different topology. So you have a very, very high degree of control over the topologies, the number of topologies, and the VLANs that participate in those spanning tree topologies. A very funny thing occurs. What happens in an environment where you are in a Cisco world and you don't want the complexities of multiple spanning tree? You have no need for it. You want a single, let's say, topology for all your devices. That's fine. You don't want to manipulate with multiple spanning tree. So Cisco did invent a mode for this person, and that's rapid per VLAN spanning tree. So what you do is you stay in a per VLAN spanning tree environment, but you go ahead and gain the benefits of rapid spanning tree protocol. So a lot of different things there, right? To review, 802.1D, classic spanning tree. Then added to classic spanning tree, we can go with the enhancements like backbone fast, uplink fast, and port fast. Then there's, let's talk about multiple spanning tree, which gives you rapid spanning tree built in. And then if you don't want multiple spanning tree, you can go to a rapid PVST plus environment where you're gaining the rapid spanning tree protocol, but not migrating to multiple spanning tree. So just a quick review there of the generations of spanning tree protocol that we have worked with. Yeah, actually, there are, I admit, there are uh, many things that we added onto classical spanning tree and we are trying to actually eliminate the drawback of the spanning tree. But I believe we couldn't dare. So what are the drawbacks, real drawbacks of the spanning tree? Why we don't want to use it? Or if you, if you want to use it, why we want to use it? Let's talk yeah. about, yeah. Yeah, yeah, what a great question. Be, and, and that is such a confusing point, right? Because if we look at a rapid spanning tree protocol environment, we have this very fast convergence. So students will often say, well, wait a minute. Rapid spanning tree protocol solved this convergence delay issue. It solved this reliance on timers. So why would we be interested in doing away with it? <laughs> it's really a great question, right? I mean, yeah. rapid spanning tree protocol is wonderful, 
and now it comes out and is being adopted and we're doing away with spanning tree in many environments to to begin with so what happened well remember we would prefer an environment where all links are active i mean you've got these connections between your devices you paid for these connections and those connections aren't utilized and remember in a spanning tree protocol environment we have ports that are in a blocking state we have wasted bandwidth so we begin to migrate away from spanning tree protocol in environments where we want full utilization of the bandwidth yes actually when i talk about this point with the people they say but actually i can use bridging for the uh, many vlans and i made them route from spinning three point of view and another vlan on the another switch so to- total bisectional bandwidth i can still utilize so i can still use my all uplink yes actually but uh, you will deal with all the complexity. So that's why maybe we should look at other protocols which don't have all those complexity and from the day one brings uh, uh, multi-path support. So I can use now all the uplinks. Right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I don't want to have to go through the work of designing multiple topologies in spanning tree to utilize full bandwidth if I don't have to, if there are alternatives that spare me the design elements of load balancing with spanning tree. I, I, I completely agree. Definitely, definitely. So let's, let's start to talk about what are those alternatives. And I want to start with ether channels. Let's define what's ether channel, what can we get from the uh, ether channel, and if there is any other type of ether channel let's talk about all those that sounds great so ether channel so what so funny i love ether channel right we play a simple trick on spanning tree protocol it's it's hysterical we we still have spanning tree protocol it's still there it's still doing its job with ether channel we trick it we take let's say four links that are between two of our devices and we bundle these links together and make them look to spanning tree like one link. This one link is called a port channel. And of course on a Cisco device, it has the, the abbreviation PO. So we have like PO 10, port channel 10. And this particular port channel looks to spanning tree like a single link. So where we would have before one of the links active and three of the links blocked, we now have one logical link between the devices and spanning tree protocol leaves this in an upstate. We have dynamic load balancing between those four links, which takes place and on most Cisco devices, we can go in and manipulate that. We can manipulate how the four actual physical links are load balanced between in that Ether channel. Some of you listening 
are going to say, you know what, I don't even care. I, as long as it works, as long as I have redundancy, as long as all four of the links can be used, I don't care about the particulars of how the load balancing works, and that's fine. Something that is important to understand about Ether Channel at this level is that there are three ways in a Cisco environment to set it up. Three possible ways. Now, I need to caution our listeners. Not all of these methods are going to be available in all of your Cisco technologies. Let me quickly uh, go through the three, and then I'll elaborate on that. First, you can always set up an Ether channel statically. So you go to one device and you say, okay, you four links, you are going to be in an Ether channel. Unequivocally, that's what's going to happen. I am forcing you to Ether channel. And then you go over to your other device and you say, okay, you four links, I am statically configuring you to Ether channel. That's what you must do. And we don't use any dynamic negotiation protocol whatsoever between these two devices. We statically configure them. This method is available on all of our Cisco devices that I've ever seen. Okay, so you can always go and statically configure the Ether channel. Now, there is a Cisco proprietary dynamic method of configuring the Ether channel, and this is called PAG-P the port aggregation protocol. This is the one, believe it or not, that is not always available in Cisco technologies. Even though Cisco invented it, Cisco's recognizing that they should move away from proprietary technologies, so sometimes you won't have the option of PAG-P. The one we always tend to see on Cisco devices is LACP. Link Aggregation Control Protocol. This dynamic method of forming the Ether channel uh, is going to be supported on a wider range of devices from Cisco. And this, again, is a dynamic way to do it. You can have one side say to the other side, hey, let's form an Ether channel. And then dynamically, you can have the other side say, okay, that's great. I'd like to form the Ether channel. And that's the way in which this bundle of links can form. For the Ether channel, I want to add a couple points here. You said two de- between the two devices, we set the Ether channel. So we are expecting those four links to be between two devices, two switches. We will talk about multi-shot Ether channel. Now we, we can use three devices. And also you talked about PAGP. Probably now, like in the past, there was ISL. I don't think right now it's uh, all the devices. All the devices supports that one queue. Cisco, uh, yeah, invent something. Then the industry also, IATF, implements another protocol. Sometimes Cisco says, okay, let's continue with that. For the PAGP, I see the ex- exact same thing. But for PAGP also, what I remember... Uh, once we set up the VSS, which we will talk about now, once we set up the VSS in the past, we could use PAGP fast hello to detect the failure 
But once we come to VSS, let's talk about that. What I want to talk with you now, multi-shift ether channel. What it can give us, or what are the benefits compared to ether channel? But before that, also last last thing I want to say, for the uh, ether channel, we are saying that, but uh, many vendors, depends on who you are talking with, they can call it port channel, link bonding, link aggregation group, many names they can give. And I believe in the standard, it's called link aggregation group. Let's yeah, talk I about multi-chase ether channel. And, and, and also, Orhan, yeah. uh, I think it's worth us pointing out that I get this question a lot, and this is something that, that students are really going to want to turn to their documentation for, mm-hmm. for their particular device and their particular operating system, and that is the number of ether channels that a device can support yeah and the number of links in an ether channel so that is going to be oh that there's tremendous variation yeah. so they'll want to consult their particular documentation how many ether channels can the device support and how many links are permitted some devices permit 4 some 8 some 16 links so we have to research our particular device to see just how scalable Ether Channel is. Also, maybe we should say now what we are talking basically from the local area network point of view. But we have also uh, Ether Channel Dash at the Sand Fabric, but this is definitely for the local area network. And once you set how many links we can put into the bundle, Ether Channel, uh, yeah, it it's also differs Dash. So, but in general, eight, maybe we would say it's common, right? But it can go more or less, depends on the vendor, and they should definitely consult uh, their vendor. Yeah. Let's jump to multi-chase ether channel. Yeah, this is really, really exciting. Yeah. So, we have ether channel between our two devices only. What if we could introduce a third device? And now we get into that classic triangular style of building the network that we spoke about in part one of our CCNA data center course, our podcast series here at Packet Pushers. And so we have this kind of triangle of devices. What if we could take ether channels coming from the two devices and bundle those together to that other device. So what if we could extend the Ether channel across multi-chassis? We call this multi-chassis Ether channel, or you'll also see it as multi-chassis link aggregation. And Orhan, what I've noticed with this is, I've noticed that different vendors are implementing this technology in a lot of different ways. So you might have like HP with their intelligent, resilient framework approach, and they're doing uh, a similar approach to Cisco's VSS solution where it's a single control plane. It's, it's making the multiple devices look like a single device. And then if you look at like Arista Networks, they're doing a dual control plane approach with the devices. So I think we're going to see a tremendous amount of variation in how vendors are actually implementing this technology. 
as you said, also as I remember, HP, IRF, they claimed uh, they support up to four devices. Uh, I'm not oh, sure about that, but yeah, yeah, excellent point. Yeah, I can't remember the exact numbers, but again, we should research that when we're yeah. looking at solutions because some are going to incorporate multi-chassis ether channel across just two devices and others are going to expand upon that two device limitation. Yeah, yeah. With Cisco, the current limitation in VSS, the virtual switching system is two devices. Yeah. Let's start then uh, talk about VSS. It's one of the multi-chassis. It's b- basically work on multi-chassis ether channel principle. So, let's jump in and then let's talk about it. Sounds great. So I first saw this on the 6500 series. Uh, I think it is supported on other classes of devices, but my only experience with VSS has been on the 6500s. I have experience on 4500 as well. Now they support on the 4500 as well. Excellent. So we've got some some various model support from Cisco. And, and what we do is we take two devices and we... We, like I said, we unify that control plane. The two devices act like one device. And in order to do this, the main ingredient is failover between those two devices. You have one 6500, let's just use that as an example. You have one 6500 that is in the active state from a VSS perspective. And then you have the second device in a standby state from a VSS perspective. Now, obviously, these two brains need to be able to communicate, and they do this over a virtual switch link, or VSL. And what's hilarious about this link, as you might guess, is we want to Ether channel it. So you can go ahead and create an Ether channel, and this Ether channel becomes your virtual switch link between the two devices, And now you have the ability to do Ether channels from these two devices and from a, you know, from a a logical perspective, have it be one bundle. Again, we see a richer tricking, a much more sophisticated tricking of the underlying spanning tree protocol to not block any of our connections. VSS, as you said, only one controller at the same time active and it controls the two physical chassis. What are those control packets like spanning tree might be? Because with the uh, multi-chassis ether channels, we are using spanning tree as safety mechanism, we can say maybe, right? And uh, uh, still it's there. Also, if you are using HSRP for the HSRP packets, all those control plane packets actually just managed by the one device. And in case supervisor failure, then the, another device. Supervisor is the control plane engine for the switch, for that chassis. And then once that fails, another chassis can take the responsibility and can control the packet. Maybe in this point, we should also say that even from the control plane point of view, only one device active but the data plane, both device active, which means if I send the packet left or right chassis, then both of them process the packet, and that's why both data plane active, we say. Great. Yep. Great stuff. And and now 
we can transition into our next technology because now we, we, we see a Cisco solution where there's that single control plane, as Orhan described beautifully for us there. Now with virtual port channeling in the Nexus, we have a dual control plane approach. So, so the idea with virtual port channeling isn't to have that single control plane with the active standby approach. There's more of a dual control plane approach with your two devices. Now, virtual port channeling or VPC is again a Nexus solution. So we're not going to have this across all of our Cisco devices yet, but we're going to see it in the Nexus environment. Now, something that confuses students is there is a VPC plus. Yeah. What's the big deal with VPC plus? Well, VPC plus supports another technology we'll talk about later in this podcast, and that's Fabric Path. So just understand when you see VPC plus, you're talking about, oh, okay, being able to do virtual port channeling in not a spanning tree environment, but in a fabric path environment instead. VPC is very similar to VSS. I mean, we are having multi-chassis ether channel with this solution. We are using a key link between the two devices. In VSS, we called it a virtual switch link. In VPC, we call it a VPC peer link. With VPC, we have one of those technologies that I alluded to earlier where LACP is the only supported technology. So you can utilize a dynamic protocol for virtual port channeling, but it's link aggregation control protocol only that we can use. So virtual port channeling, yet another way in which to trick spanning tree protocol and allow multi-chassis ether channel. Yep. Also, when you, a couple times you said uh, LACP and compared to static uh, link aggregation group, actually, I want to say LACP also gives us very important benefit, which is when we connect, let's say, two, two switches and with the two Cable, but they may not just connect to point to point. Uh, maybe between the links there is another transport equipment. So if one of the link at one one device fails, so if you cannot signal that failure to another side of the link, then it might create a loop. So uh, with the LACP we have we are sending actually the keep alive packet. So we know that. Uh, remote end also failed, so we we can remove that link from the bundle, so we can eliminate possible forwarding loop, let's say. Then what we talked about VSS, we talked about VPC, virtual port channel. What I see, uh, as you, uh, Anthony, as you described, we have VS, for the VSS virtual switch link, we, with the VPC keep alive, also there, but with the VPC also we have VPC peer link. Always, when when we use multi-channel technology, so between 
those three devices, one, if we say, I, I don't want to say right now, leaf and spine, we are not there yet, but the two devices which we connect together with the, that link, VPC peer or VSL link, uh, that link always there to synchronize the control plane packets and also send the, some another information such as MAC addresses to teach the another device. So now we can use both chassis as active-active, I already said from the data plane point of view. So that link has to be there and has to be active. But now the question, can we use that link for the data plane? We can, but it doesn't mean we should. In general, we, we, we design for the control plane, but still we can use in case some failure. But what, what maybe here uh, we should say also for that link, sometimes we are using another link to just understand if really that link down or the another chassis down. So we need to identify that. So do you want to talk about that? Peer keep alive and how we can achieve peer keep alive? Uh, yeah, no, go ahead. You're doing great. Okay. That's awesome. For the peer keep alive, we can use through even management port of devices, chassis, or we can just use another uplink from the line cards. And then, uh, but this is really important to identify, to distinguish between the link failure, the control plane link failure, then the chassis failure. That's why for all these technologies, VSS, VPC, and we will see other fabrics as well. So this architecture needs that link to be active, used for the control plane traffic, and maybe another link, you can name it uh, with keep, keep, peer keep alive, whatever, keep alive mechanism. So that's why very important point. Now I want to talk another interesting, interesting topic. Ethernet host virtualizer, EHV. Yes. Yeah. 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 This is, this is a, a, another tricking of spanning tree protocol. I love it. So mm-hmm. notice the theme mm-hmm. where we trick the underlying spanning tree. So what EHV is all about is in our UCS system. So we have the unified computing system and just Vision with me the the UCS. What this looks like is you have these blade servers, rack mount blade servers, and then maybe you've even invested in a chassis. So you have a chassis in your rack, and inside that chassis you've got these blade servers inserted. And these rack mount servers and these blade servers in the chassis, they all connect up to your fabric interconnect. The fabric interconnect then connects upstream to your Nexus and your MDS devices. So the fabric interconnect connects all those servers to the LAN and the SAN networking equipment that's northbound. Well, the fabric interconnect by default, operates in end host or Ethernet host, you'll see it different ways, EHV mode. The most common uh, representation of that that I've seen is end host virtualizer mode. Yeah, I remember now. (laughs) Yeah, EHV, what it's doing is it's 
it is eliminating the use of spanning tree at the fabric interconnect. It's playing the role of an end host with multiple NICs as opposed to a switch. So this is really interesting. By the way, if you would, if you should want your fabric interconnect to function like a switch and run spanning tree, you can put the fabric interconnect in that mode. I've never seen it done, but you could do it. Instead, most implementations I see run in the default EHV mode. Now what happens is the ports on each side, if you will, of the fabric interconnect are divided by role. You have what are called host ports, which lead down to the blades and and your rack mount servers. And then the network ports are identified as those ports that connect northbound to the LAN and SAN equipment. We have what's called pinning between those ports. So you'll have your blade servers coming up, communicating to their host port, and that host port will be pinned to a network port for movement upstream. The pinning is done automatically, and sure enough, it's redundant. Should you have the failure of a network port, your host ports will be automatically repinned to the surviving network ports. Now, on the fabric interconnect, should you want to, you can go ahead and engage in the mapping, the static mappings of particular host ports to particular network ports. We call this static pinning in the UCS system. But the bottom line is, here we have another tricking of spanning tree protocol. We have a device that is behaving in such a manner where spanning tree protocol does not need to get involved with blocking behavior. So I wanted to bring this technology up uh, for several reasons. Number one, it has to do with the elimination or tricking of spanning tree protocol. And number two is as a CCNA data center candidate, you really should understand EHV, end host virtualization mode, on your fabric interconnect in the UCS system. Yep. Until now, all with all this technology, we were still using actually spanning tree with eternal multi-shus eternal virtual switching system which uh, rely on multi-shus eternal and then virtual port channel plus also Ethernet host virtualizer. Spanning tree was still there. But now we will talk about three technologies, short sped bridging, trill and fabric pads. They don't use spanning tree at all, I will say, but maybe at the edge of the network still you can say, Orhan, we are, we can use it. Yes. But it, once you think that short sped with that one, we create a fabric and then within that fabric, we are not using at all. We are relying on the routing protocol, which, which we will talk about. And then uh, we are eliminating the really the also use, usage of spanning tree. It's not there anymore. Not just for, it's not just giving us a multi-path capability. Also spanning tree related issue 
might happen and uh, we will not see that. Let's start, let's start with short spread bridging, uh, shortly sh- SPB and talk about that. Anthony. Yeah, sounds great. So shortest path bridging. Well, I've got some good news for our CCNA data center students. They really won't hit this technology in their studies. And that's because uh, it's something that we see Avaya and HP really utilizing. Cisco went a slightly different route. So shortest path bridging we bring up here in the podcast, of course, for you to go beyond uh, and, and to really have a complete understanding. The idea is very much like Trill and Cisco's implementation of Trill fabric path that we'll discuss. It's taking routing intelligence, particularly ISIS as your routing protocol, and bringing routing intelligence to the layer two infrastructure. So shortest path bridging, or by its standard designation, 802.1aq, takes ISIS routing intelligence and utilizes it at layer two. So we replace spanning tree protocol with a shortest path routing style of intelligence that does indeed feature load balancing between multiple paths that are of equal cost instead of terminating or blocking these links in the infrastructure. So companies like HP use a shortest path bridging approach where Cisco utilizes a fabric path approach. Fabric path Guess what? Uh, Nearly identical to discuss. We are using ISIS routing intelligence at layer two in order to eliminate the need for spanning tree protocol. So no blocking whatsoever, really fast convergence, equal cost multipath or ECMP technology at work so that we can utilize multiple paths in the network. And different vendors are implementing this technology in different ways. For instance, Radia Perlman developed Trill and developed this concept. Cisco implemented it and called it Fabric Path. Brocade implemented it and called it VCS. So you really have to be particular here and and really investigate what a vendor is doing and what technology they're basing their solution upon. Orhan, what do you have to add in this particular really fascinating area of taking Layer 3 routing intelligence and bringing it to Layer 2? Yeah. Also, with the, all these three technologies, and as you mentioned also VCS Fabric, they, they are all actually using, we use them to understand and determine and, and topology. Actually, for the topology information, I want to say this. Not the reachability information like what we are doing with the routing protocols. What does this mean, right? Think about like 10 devices uh, connected somehow with 
any any physical topology. I want to understand uh, with this top, with these technologies, short sped bridging trail fabric pads, from one device to another device, what are the pads and uh, which one is best? And based on whichever protocol you are using, there is some metric uh, which will come with the ISAS cost. So I I will know now from point A to point B, I can go uh, through point C so I can reach. But still, once we talk about layer 2, these are layer 2 technologies, so I want to know the MAC addresses of the destination device, but I am not advertising with these any technology those and host MAC addresses. I just use ISIS protocol to understand to go from switch A to switch B through switch C. But many of these protocols still rely for the that end host MAC learning, still they are using data plane learning. They call them, some of them, conversational learning, which if you don't know the destination MAC address, I will not record your source MAC address on that port. Uh, so, little bit different than traditional data plane learning, but still there. Flute and learn. Actually, it could be done, possibly the Avaya is doing that with the short sped bridging. And I want to add also that point. Avaya at the last Sochi Olympics, Avaya's short sped bridging technology actually used the, that's in that course. So for the audience, maybe they want to check, they want to just research that it was interesting design. But this, all this technology, Again, I want to say, not for Antos reachability. It is just creating a topology. If you use plain routing with any routing protocol like OSPF, ISAS, EIGRP, you are creating a topology information and also you are advertising the reachability information through that protocols. But here there is difference. Okay, what do you want to add here, Anthony? Well, I just want to add that we see Cisco bringing ISIS back into their curriculum. And, you know, here, <laughs> here they had eliminated it from their certifications, and now they're bringing ISIS back. And that's a good idea. But students really shouldn't panic about this because, for instance, if we're in a Cisco environment and we configure Fabric Path, we are not in the traditional sense configuring ISIS. So it is good that we restudy, relearn ISIS. It's good that we understand the makeup of that routing protocol. But keep in mind, we will not have to actually configure ISIS in the traditional sense when we configure Fabric Path. As Orhan indicated, there it's being used in a very unique way compared to traditional layer three routing infrastructures. And sure enough, we don't even configure it in a classic sense when we configure Fabric Path. We configure Fabric Path and the ISIS is configured for us automatically behind the scenes by the Cisco equipment. We, we can just maybe tune the ISIS parameter. That's it. Yeah. That's, that's right. And, and, and again, that's why it's a very good idea that we study ISIS. Yep. Yeah, and now we talked seven technologies. Some of them reduced uh, reduced spinning trees drawbacks, but still a safety mechanism there. 
but short sped thrill and fabric pet we are not using anymore the spinning tree but what would be really good actually and i want to take your word here first time we didn't talk before i want to talk here what about if we could also talk in the part three maybe vxlan all this overlay mvgre stt those overlay technologies as well it would be nice right anthony excellent idea and again Yeah. I think what we should do for our audience mm-hmm. is is we will be sure to point out when we go beyond the scope of CCNA data center. So we will go beyond the scope of CCNA data center mm-hmm. a little bit like we did today, but we'll be sure to point out in the podcast when we have done that. So today if you look at our seven topics a CCNA data center student should really be very familiar with uh ether channel yeah. and they should be very familiar with virtual port channels and they should be very familiar with fabric path and end host virtualization so those four topics right there and we'll add the fifth of spanning tree itself but you know vss and shortest path bridging those are technologies that they're not necessarily going to be responsible for at the CCNA data center level but they were brought up in this podcast because well we should definitely know them and we should always strive to go farther with our understanding than just certification leads us to definitely And it was really great talk today uh, again. What do you want to say lastly for the audience? Well, I would just like to thank them so much for tuning into this podcast. Orhan and I will put our heads together and design a excellent part three in the CCNA data center series. And yeah, we'll cover overlay technologies, which again are very, very confusing for students. So I hope we'll make it quite simple for them. Definitely. Thank you very much, Anthony. And thank you, my friend. Have a great week. Okay. See okay. You. you too. Bye.